Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, Memorial Day. <laughs> yes. May 30th, probably. Is it? 2022. I'm guessing the 29th. No, no it's the 30th. It's the 30th? You know that uh, today's the 30th because yesterday was the 29th and that was Hazi's birthday. Oh, that's true. It's Hazi's birthday. Hazi, one year old. Yes. Doesn't look a day over uh, six months or eight months. Or, uh, actually, he looks Anyway, with us today, uh, because of the holiday weekend, is uh, Sadie Apuhoff. Sadie Apuhoff, who was here for the party yesterday. And, uh, yeah, that yeah. was interesting. That was fun. Yeah, and, now, and uh, lived up to the hype. Lived up to the hype. Well, mostly Hazi has lived up to the hype. That's the important yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, the uh, last thing for a one-year-old wants to do is have a party. That's right. I mean, Hazi came out in the hands of uh, his mom and looked around at the crowd, and which was not huge. Right. A lot of, a lot of goodness, and smattering was, of grandparents right. mainly, and uh, just wanted nothing to do with any of us. Right. That's for sure. Like the groundhog. Like the, <laughs> ready for another six <laughs> months. Tony Phil. Summer will never come, according to Hazi. Well, he's got easier times ahead. He, he has to just pull himself together for next year. He was not terribly interested in the smash cake. Didn't want any cake. No. If you, the birthday boy you know, you make a special cake. little cake for the kid yeah, to you dive into. into. This. I, 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 no, no, no. I, I was assigned this task with the first grandchild. I understand. And, uh, you know. It, it, it's a canard. One-year-old children are not interested in, uh, in cake, one way or another. Well, kind of the ones we know are, yes, are not, they apparently. Want, uh, but he rose yes. to the occasion with the gifts. Yes, he did. He was very... He was interested in the gifts. He was very appreciative. And uh, oddly enough, uh, his favorite gift was an enormous riding swan. Yeah. Like uh, like you have a rocking horse, it's a rocking yes. swan yeah, that one somebody sent to him. Misfire written all over it. And he loved it. For a few seconds. But we'll see. We'll see if he really stays with it. Anyway, that. it's, uh, you know, it's been the usual holiday fun, yeah. including going to the movies. Yes. And we sneaked out and we saw a movie that, you know. We saw the movie uh, of the early spring, although I'm sure it's going to be supplanted soon enough. Perhaps it already has been. Which is everything, everywhere, all at once was what we saw on Friday, you and I. Right. And uh, we so, we saw it Friday because we sensed yeah. Sadie would not be interested. Yes. And, is uh, that true? Well, Sadie? you say it's a movie of spring. I've never heard of it. Uh, uh, all right, all right, good. I don't think it can be. Well, I haven't it. heard of it. Each of your brothers and their very different personalities have seen this movie, and uh, I think they've been very high on it. I only two i think the expression is both of your brothers okay both of my brothers well i didn't see it together but my point is that uh it's an odd movie uh and it is let me give a very cursory description i can't get into it at all but it's uh, it's a story of uh, a woman who lives in the multiverse uh played by michelle yeah she operates laundromat it seems to be a kind of difficult pressed exist- existence she's got a daughter She's at odds with. She's not thrilled with her husband. Her father makes demands, an older man. And uh, before you know it, she is thrust into the multiverse. And she learns that there are multiple personalities and multi-universes in which she participates in various versions of herself. And we get to experience some of that with her. And ultimately, of course, it spirals back to what we would call the real world. Um, So it's kind of an out-there movie. And uh, I'll ask you what you thought of it first, Tamsin, and then I'll weigh in. What do you think? 
I thought it was fine. Uh, there were times when I was a little bit bored. Um, there were times, many times, when I was rather mystified. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, it uh, it told a story. It told it told uh, a fairly you know typical told a mother daughter yeah. you know what the story uh, family was? dynamic story. You know what story it told? Uh, it told the story of Runaway Bunny. I almost felt like Runaway Bunny should be accredited because <laughs> it, the story was no matter where you go, the mother says to her daughter, "I will be there." I mean, that's what that okay. that's that's how simple that story is, All right? right. Um, yeah. So I was disappointed. I know that's the wrong thing to say. Because it's, it's a cool movie. It's been called a hipster movie. I know that's a loaded word. Who um, calls it a hipster movie? I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody who even talks like that. The critics. That. Uh, the critics. No, you're making that up. Uh, Rotten right, Tomatoes talk. Yeah, and, and I know uh, both of uh, my sons liked it. Uh, so, uh, I'm, looking, uh, I'm trying to look on the positive side. There is a lot of positive there. But, uh, at the end of the day... I would give it an incomplete, like it's a first draft. Like it's an interesting idea, but it doesn't really uh, land uh, to me. And I, I say that again, caveat, a lot of positive reviews, a lot of people love it. Um, but here's a review from The Guardian. Here, I only quote this because this is similar to what I thought. Uh, this is Peter Bradshaw, and I'm going to uh, extrapolate a little bit what he said, but it's largely a quote. He said, it's a mad succession of consequence-free events with disparate trains of activity. The result is nothing is actually at stake. The movie should be called Nothing Nowhere Over a Long Period of Time. Now, that is a little harsh, a little harsh. But, but I, that's what I thought was disappointing. I thought that the character Michelle Yeoh... Um, She's observing things. She's not, there's no arc. There's no development of this character. And they just have her observing herself and other universes in a way she, she's watching the movie with us almost. Uh, and therefore there's no journey to go on. And there's a lot of dead time with these multiverses. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they stick a lot of stuff in for references sake. I guess it's supposed to be funny. And Jamie Lee Curtis plays a wild character. I can describe every one of Jamie Lee Curtis's Scenes in one word, tedious. So um, it didn't really uh, okay. land with me. Uh, oh, or put it another way, a lot of it was interesting, but at the end of the day, the story was was the simple story you mentioned, which didn't really relate very much to all the hubbub. Uh, and with a little rewriting, a little thought, they might be able to connect it up. So uh, I was just disappointed. Just disappointed. Well, that surprises me because uh, previously you had told me you liked it. Yeah, I kind of liked it in the I sense... I think you were just trying to be one of the cool kids. No, no, no. I, I said I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I've thought about it quite a bit. Okay. i got to give it that. So that's how I've come to this. I, I, I guess disappointed is the word. It's not that it was bad. It could have been a lot better. You would like to think, you know, it was made by uh, Dan Kwan and, and Daniel Shiner, the two Daniels. You'd like to think their parents would have sat down with them and looked at the first cut you know, the first okay. two runs. Right. And That's said, hilarious. Here's how you should change this. All right, time to it move on. It could have been a better movie. <laughs> time so to then move on. we went and we saw a movie on the opposite end of the spectrum with Sadie. And yes. that's, that's why Sadie's here. Uh, and we saw Downton Abbey, A New Era. And you would think that you know, the same person is not allowed to see those two movies in succession, but we were allowed to in different movie theaters. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is the new uh, Downton Abbey franchise film. And uh, what do you think of it, Sid? I thought it was good. I thought it was better than the first one. The first film. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Were you a watcher of the, the whole series? No, I watched it during um, quarantine. I watched mm-hmm. Downton Abbey on Netflix during quarantine. All of it? or Yes. Oh, okay. All, All right. right. So you're, so up you're on a things. fan? Yes, I'm a new fan. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, and then your father was taking kicking it and screaming to the... Uh, well, because I'm sort of a hipster. To the fun. Well, you keep saying it's a, like totally different than the movie you saw the night before. But frankly, you guys are the core demographic for the Downton Abbey We are. We are. Movie. We are. But not for the first film. Why not? Everything Everywhere? No, the first... Downton oh film? no, the first sure. no, 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 yeah, no. We are the core demographic for the film. Well, let me, let me, uh, let's go in order again. What do you think of the Downton Abbey film, Tim? I thought it was perfectly enjoyable. Uh, look, I agree with you. I would, I, I, agree I, with I you. thought I'd be much kicking more and screaming, notwithstanding. It was, it was, yeah. Look, the uh, challenge with the first Downton Abbey movie is that they have so many characters and they all had their own storyline, so it was like jam packed. Yeah. And I think this one, even though there was a lot going on in this one, I feel like they simplified a little bit more and it was easier to follow what was happening. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, here's an interesting thing. And I, it, it's it's a convention of uh, narrative storytelling. And I think they really understand it well in Downton Abbey, aside from having very nuanced characters, is that the way you sort of bring an audience into a story is often you put the characters in slightly unfamiliar situations so that they're tested in some way. And the question is, how are they going to react? And to the extent there's a challenge, are they going to rise to the challenge? And this movie was really structured very much along those lines. They had uh, two different subplots going on, one having a Hollywood film crew there at Downton Abbey, the other having half the family over at the French Riviera. In both cases, they're tested by different circumstances. And uh, that works. I mean, that brings out different things of the characters and gives you a chance to see the characters a different way, don't you think? Well, that's also the theme of the entire show, because the entire show is built on the concept of they're leaving, I forget what it's called, the Victorian era or something, whatever era that they were in that has a downstairs and an upstairs, they're leaving that era and they don't need the big house anymore and they're modernizing, but how do they do that in a way that makes sense for their family. Right, right. And I think that's what makes, you're right, that's what makes that series go. If it was just a matter of watching them and saying, well, here they are, and the question is, you know, are the shirt's going to be laundered in time, uh, there's nothing to watch. But, it, it, but a substantial per- yeah. percentage yeah. of the delight of the show yeah. is just seeing all the stuff, seeing yeah. how they dress, how they eat, what the villa looks like yeah. on the Riviera. You know, it's all... Some of the scenes were completely um, meaningless. It just gave people a chance to walk down steps in, uh, you know, early 20th century tennis garb. Yeah. Uh, it, you look, know. It, it, it's a little travelogue also. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a little of that going for it. Right. And, you know... You know, I actually saw... Heard someone say, writing about it and praising the movie. Um they said a lot of movies today, in order to seem more serious, are sort of shot in a darkened mode. Yeah. And people are beginning to complain about it. And this movie's shot in a light mode. Very light. Uh, Very bright. Yeah. Uh, and it's not accidental. Well, honestly, I think what they often do, and I don't know if this is on 
I don't know if this is intentional or not, but they often have the upstairs lighter than the dark the downstairs. So when they're filming downstairs, yeah. it's a little bit darker. In this movie, it was, I felt it was lighter than usual. But like the downstairs is kind of a different mm. vibe than the upstairs, which makes sense because they wouldn't have as much lighting. They mm. wouldn't have as much windows and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I will say, again, I mean, you say it's kicking and screaming. It is nothing that I once saw the movie kicking and screaming. It's not because uh, I want to see a hip movie or something like that. But Everything Everywhere All at Once had, on Rotten Tomatoes, 90% approval rating from the audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, high hopes. Uh, Downton Abbey movie rating audience, 94%. Now, a lot of that is self-selection. I mean, yeah. who goes to that movie? Yeah. But uh, but I was surprised it was that high. Maggie Smith cannot be denied. Well, listen, uh, Maggie Smith is uh, was a national great. treasure, an international treasure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, all right. So, did you want to go on to your next? Uh... No, I, I think uh, Sadie wants to get on the road. Sadie so wants we're to, gonna we're we'll gonna take, take a, a quick slight break. pause here. It won't be a pause. No one listening will notice. Okay, as Sadie hops up to get in the car. All right, Sadie, thanks for your input. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Sadie. Who's now on the road with everybody else in America, heading home from Memorial Day weekend festivities. I think she's. I think she's scampering because she wants to watch some hockey final, not yeah. finals, semifinals. Uh, no, 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 quarterfinals, yeah. yeah. Rangers um, against the uh, Hank Canes. Oh, oh, she didn't want to be here for that. No. That'd be awkward. Yeah. Sadie is a Canes fan. Yes, and I'm a Ranger fan. So, uh, go ahead. You were going to get into uh, art. We haven't had to talk about art yet. Well, I'm not going to talk much about art because this is a kind of a complicated subject. Oh, okay. Keep okay. it simple. And uh, there's an article by Jason Farrago. Speculation and hype are calling the shots. You know, we were we were talking about these uh, crazy auction prices right. for everything, and uh, kind of driving up certainly the value for the works of various artists. Yeah. And but value is a really loaded word. You know, there's uh, you know that. Value is what anybody's willing to pay for it, I guess. But, right. Uh, right. But right. Or but or well, um, or as Oscar Wilde said, and this is quoted in the article, uh, um, Frago says, "You remember Oscar Wilde's uh, aphorism from Lady Windermere's fan: the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing." Okay. So so, he- so that's what it's really come to. The prices are astronomical. And, uh, you know, but what is the real value of any of these artworks? And, uh, you know, Frago is kind of uh, struggling with this. Um, and he, he talks about how you want to determine the value of an acre of land, you call an assessor. You want a value for your jewelry, you call an appraiser, you know. And uh, somehow painting uh, isn't priced like real estate, so many dollars a square foot. What do you do? And he, he says, all you have is a shared sense of the importance and rarity of some useless object of beauty. Until recently, that value was determined by a shadowy social collectivity called the art world. Curators, scholars, editors, educators, even the odd critic. 
now those old gatekeepers no longer have much of a say. So it's really the collectors um, and their their thirst that's uh, well. Doesn't he say also that the collectors are somewhat influenced by social media? That there is sometimes the demand is sort of created on social media or interest. On the, on the part, yeah, yeah, they're all they're all. It's a totally democratic process. A lot of people just get on social media and say, "This is the impression he gives." I don't yes. know that it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's for drum, you know, beating the drum for something. Yeah, and then out of the clear blue, suddenly the price is there. Exactly. So the general opinion is driving it to you know to some extent. Right. You know. Well, uh, that, that's a dicey subject. Yeah, that's a as I said, it's a democratic uh, approach. The market is what the market is. But it is a changing of the guard, and maybe uh, it's a changing of the guard for the negative. Maybe it's just a matter of, uh, maybe it's whimsical, maybe it's quixotic, maybe it's just, you know, what's hot I, I today. Think it, it, it's not even that he's saying, well, this is crazy yeah. that Basquiat is selling for this many million dollars, or Warhol is selling for $200 million right. or whatever. Um, but what's really... And he says here, newest and most noteworthy were the miles over the estimate hammers for untested, unheralded right. painters, more often than not women, often with aggressive galleries behind them, in other words, promoting them, right. uh, okay, but little museum credibility or public esteem. And then he says, and you thought the worst inflation was now at Whole Foods. So, I mean, that's part of the thing. That's what he's talking about. A couple of, I think Wyatt was the name of one of these painters or whatever. And he he shows some of her paintings. And he obviously is not overly enthusiastic, or at least is reserved in his judgment in terms of the quality and, and the timeless, you know, quality of what they have here. And yet, tremendous prices because interest. And he says, he says, uh, he's not so, it's not just the prices that uh, um, he's focused on. Money comes and goes, he says, but the mechanisms that determine these prices, who used to assign value and who does now. So used to, you know, curators, um, right. you know, uh, intellectuals, critics, museums, right. yeah. critics, etc. But now, as you were saying, uh, social media, media uh, etc. Right. Um, a decade ago, museum legitimization and academic praise were key to determining financial value. Changing tastes may have pushed prices for Pollock and Warhol over the old masters, okay, um, but at least historians and curators were on board. Now the collector's hunger comes first, stoked largely via Instagram and other digital well, networks. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, again, it's a, it's, it's a sensitive subject because it is an anti-democratic instinct to say, wait a second, the experts aren't excited about this. But uh, on the other hand, I, I, you go back to that quote from Oscar Wilde, and maybe people are just being carried away by the frenzy of the moment. Yeah. And there's not much there. The price, there. It's price, not value. He mentioned an interesting thing, the uh, buy one, give one phenomenon yeah, for yeah, museums. Yeah. Right. So you buy a work of art. For a lot of money. For a lot of money. Yeah. And maybe you buy, you know, uh, two works of art and commit to giving the second one to an institution like maybe right. they're from these the same artists right uh, okay and uh this way and apparently if you give it to a nonprofit right away 
you can deduct. You get a great tax break. Plus, yeah, plus, well, you, no, you you get the the value. You can deduct what you paid for it. Right. Okay. Okay. But if you wait a year, you mm-hmm. can deduct its fair market value. Right. So if during that year, um, somebody, you, the gallery, whoever, uh, is able to pump up the value, but the, the reputation of that artist, you can actually deduct, deduct more, but, more than but you paid for But the way you pump it. it up is by paying a lot for the first painting. So in other words, that helps pump it up. Right, but also getting involved, you know, with the social media, etc. Right, cetera. but here, so it, it's it's like back and forth. On the one hand, you, the first painting price influences the value of the second painting price a year later. Number one and number two, the idea of the the artist's work hanging in that museum in the years that follow also raises the price of the first right. work it's, of art. Right. So it's it's crazy. Yes. It, yes. It, but it's all marketing and it's 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 a game. So you're you're still using the um, museum legitimacy sure. aspect. Right. Okay. And yet and yet I sense that that's not the first time that's happened. I sense there's been a lot of that going on over the years. But uh, yeah. So this is just some crazy scam. Yeah. Yeah, shell game. Yes. Uh, okay. So here was an here's an article that about baseball that I think you have a little interest in. Uh, it's an article that's taken from a book by Paul O'Neill, the baseball player who played for the Reds and the Yankees, an excellent hitter. And it's called The Voice of God on Hitting. And he's, Paul O'Neill is telling a story of the time he got a call from Ted Williams, the great Ted Williams, the all-time great hitter, who uh, you know, by then had been retired for some years. This is the middle of O'Neill's career, some 20 years ago. And uh, he gave him advice on hitting. And uh, how did that come about? How it came about was that uh, there was a profile on on Ted Williams being written by Paul's sister, Molly Mm O'Neill. And Molly O'Neill, we have a cookbook or two by Molly O'Neill. She wrote Mm -hmm. for the Times and did the food section. And I think she was talking to Ted Williams about food and related stuff uh, in her article. But it got to baseball. He was... I think aware, Williams is aware that she was the sister of Paul O'Neill. And Paul was in a slump. So when Paul had heard that she was going to have this interview, she, he said to his sister, why don't you have Ted give me a call? Maybe he can help me out. And he didn't think anything would come of it. And next thing you know, he picks up the phone and he hears, Paul, this is Ted Williams. <laughs> Glad you asked. That's right. I've been thinking about you. You're a hell of a ball player. <laughs> And, you know, O'Neill says to himself, is that really Ted Williams? Did he really call me a hell of a ball player? Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, the whole article here is about that conversation and how he's completely overwhelmed by what he calls the voice of God Mm -hmm. on hitting. And Williams gives him some advice, and it's pretty simple advice. He says to him, uh, I bet you're not hitting to the opposite field. And Paul says to himself, that's exactly right. How did he know I'm not hitting to the opposite field? Well, <laughs> Anybody might say that. So he's working on that. And the other big piece of advice that Ted Williams gives to Paul O'Neill is, quote, don't let anybody change you. And he says, you know, there's a lot to that. People don't appreciate that everyone's born with a certain style of hitting. And uh, and people always try to change you. And uh, that's a mistake. You've got to stick with your swing. Ted Williams told me that. It's definitely true. Paul O'Neill even talks about how his sons, when they were growing up, tried to imitate Derek Jeter's swing. And he would say to them, don't imitate Derek Jeter's swing. Do your own swing. And he never really succeeded in that advice. And they're not in the major leagues as a result. So there you go. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, in any event, um, he did talk to Ted Williams that, uh, that afternoon, and he had been in a terrible slump. And he went out that night after taking batting practice, and he got two hits, and he got hot, and then his uh, whole season turned around. So there you go. A nice story about Paul O'Neill learning from Ted Williams. See, these guys, even at the major league level, that was can, a while ago, right? can be awed. Awed. 1999. That wasn't too long ago. This is more than 20 years ago. 23 years ago. Days. Just a few years ago. Paul O'Neill playing for the Yankees. He was a veteran. He wasn't some kid. But the idea of having Ted Williams on the phone was overwhelming. And, you know, when he grew up, you can understand why. So there was an article about uh, renovating the library at... Yeah. Trinity College, Dublin. Yeah. And uh, that seems pretty daunting. It's a pretty cool place. Uh, we've been there. Do you remember going there? No, no. This is oh, with my your, God. This is with so your other we, husband. We went I, to, I, don't, I don't think... Uh, we went to... How could you get we me went to a Ireland. Do you remember Dublin? going to Ireland? You were the young blonde that went with you. Okay, we yesterday. went to Ireland. Right. It was yeah. not that long ago. And uh, we flew into Dublin. And then took a train. Yeah, we went to the Guinness factory. I remember that. Right. Right. The brewery. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. Uh, And they mentioned in this article, the two top tourist attractions in Dublin are the Trinity Library, Trinity College Library, and the Guinness Brewery. How about the Jameson Distillery? That's not in there? I I don't know. Maybe that's number three. Okay. But uh, this is a top tourist uh, location. It's also, you know, it's a very important place. Back in the 18th century, Trinity was the University of the Irish Enlightenment. He said, "Um, alma mater to writers and thinkers like Edmund Burke, Oliver Goldsmith, Jonathan Swift. Okay. It is where the Book of Kells oh, is stored. Is that why we were there? Okay. We were there to see the Book of Kells. Yeah. And, of course, that's unsatisfying. I mean, it's cool to see the Book of Kells. <laughs> right. Um, yes. Uh, but you only get to see one page. And, of course, there are... Because it's open to one page. It's a book, right? right. And, uh, it, you know, um, you... Yeah, I mean, you get to see... The size, the texture, right. you get some sense of it. But of course, you know, it's better to look at the individual yeah. pages online or whatever. But I remember it, it, it was in a lead up area to yeah. the actual um, long room, long room. And, and I didn't know anything about the long room mm-hmm. at all. So we just walked into this room and it was beautiful. And amazing. And if you like books and you like libraries and you like reading rooms, it was just a, a, a spe- spectacular mm-hmm. aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. And I was so delighted to be there. Um, anyway, many, many, many people feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not like I'm a library geek, but uh, it, it just was mm-hmm. spectacular. And I highly enjoyed it. Um, but they're renovating it. They're changing they're, well, it. Well, they're renovating it, and a couple of things uh, galvanize them into action uh, for doing that. Uh, one uh, was uh, the fire at Notre Dame, mm-hmm. Notre Dame, mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. They destroyed, you know, an amazing icon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was just, a sh- you know, tremendously shocking that something like that could just disappear. There have been other big fires, uh, library fires. In fact, you know, I was uh, starting to read that book everybody was reading a few years ago, uh, you know, uh, the library book. 
mm-hmm. by uh, Susan Orlean mm-hmm. about uh, the fire at the L.A. Central right. um, Library. And, uh, you know, one of the problems with fire is not just, even if you stop the fire, even if all the books don't get burnt, a lot of books get destroyed by the water damage. Oh, really? Okay, of putting the fire out. Right. So that's scary. Also in Glasgow, very famous library, uh, the uh, um, Glasgow um, Art School of Art Library, designed by your friend of mine, Charles Rennie Mackintosh. Incredibly beautiful design burned to smithereens in 2014. Mm-hmm. They raised money. They rebuilt it, mm-hmm. recreated it with all the amazing furniture and architectural details, mm-hmm. and it burned again in oh, 2018. Oh, God, you're kidding me. It's such a crime. So, you know, uh, a place like uh, Trinity College um, Library is thinking hard about we got to be we got to do something here. So they're embarking on a $95 million uh, restoration. Wow. And they're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of fire suppression can you come up with, mm. you know, that will be least destructive to the books, etc. They're taking each book off the shelf yeah. and measuring it and, you know, dusting it and, uh, you know, uh, barcoding it, etc. And then they're going to put them all back. They're going to have a special um, uh, slip uh, cover for it. Um, and so each one will be have an extra cover on it when it goes back into the shelf. So they'll have to take one book off each shelf. You know what I'm saying? No. So you used to have 100 books on the shelf. Now you have 99. Yeah, okay. So things will have to be moved around right. a little bit. So this mm. is a painstaking process. Everything has to... It's the great decant. Mm. They're taking everything off the shelves yeah. um, to be stored so they can renovate mm. and then bring it back. Um, so it's a huge project. Uh, you'll be, still be able to see the Book of Kells uh, nearby. Um, and, you know... Uh, the um, the whole going into the library is a key part of the budget for Trenton College. It's a a, yeah. a key contributor uh, to the college income. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna you know keep something open for people to still come and see. Um, what else was interesting about this? It's you know it's it happens to be in a very damp location, so that's a concern. And uh, you know it's uh, you know. A big, big deal. Oh, I should mention that um, many Irish fans of Star Wars also note the strong resemblance between the Long Room and the Jedi Archive, portrayed okay. in CGI in the film Attack of the Clones. Well, maybe they can charge so money for that. So all kinds yeah. of people like this library, and certainly uh, I have great memories of it, okay. uh, in addition to uh, memories of the... Guinness Brewery. And then another um, architectural uh, fun story is that the Palace Theater at TSX Broadway, a hotel and entertainment complex in Times Square, was just moved three stories in the air. Yeah, raised three stories. So it's the Palace Theater. It's very, you know, very deluxe, glamorous uh, theater, um, uh, you know, uh, designed by Kirchhoff and Rose in the Beaux-Arts style. 
Um, it's a landmark property. Uh, it's I guess it was built around 1913. Yeah, the headline is they're picking the building up and they're raising it three stories. Right. So they wanted to add Doesn't the, make any um, sense, the group, L&L Holding, yeah. who's developing the yeah. property, yeah. Um, wanted to add more retail space. Yeah, okay. Okay. And I guess retail space, you want to be more accessible. Yeah. So that's going to be the first three floors. I understand. But okay. they, 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 this is, you know what it used to be? It's you know, it's now up where the Double Tree used to be. The Double Tree was on top of the Palace Theater. Right. Okay, the Double Tree Hotel. Yeah. All right. So they got rid of that and they lifted it up. Right. They have hydraulic that's jacks. The, that's the headline. You're like burying you jack the your yeah, That's what doesn't car. make any sense. You're raising the theater up. The theater is a huge theater. weighs a zillion pounds. Weighs 14 million pounds. And they're picking it that's up three 7, stories. That's tons. They're picking it up three stories and building something right. underneath it. So they lift it a few inches. Right. Okay. Yeah. Then they reinforce it. Yeah. Then they lift it. Right. And they reinforce it. Right. And this, they've got all these monitors right. checking every aspect all of it. This, if it's slightly out right. of kilter, things come to a halt. Um, it's just an amazing insane. project. Uh, and then then they're building the new three stories below it, right? right? Yeah. But uh, And they're doing that. I think they stopped and, and built one story, and then they moved some more and built another. Um, because that helps stabilize um, the theater as it's and yeah. the support as okay. it's going up, and you know they even before they even moved a thing, they put like this cement collar mm. around it to help hold it together right. while it was moving. But they're moving this giant yeah. building. This is all you know, like for the purpose of uh, you know selling Skechers on the first floor. And the, yeah, I mean it's insane. Okay. It, was, it doesn't it, make any sense. Uh, but, but the building didn't make any sense because the hotel the hotel that started on the third floor didn't make any sense. You know, we've all been in that hotel. you got to take an escalator or two just to, you know, to check into your hotel, which it always seemed totally odd. <laughs> uh, people say, take an elevator. I say, where's the elevator? The third floor. You go, that doesn't make any sense. But that's the way it's always been. All right, so, so it's just uh, just an amazing project, lifting up Yeah, that's in the 40s on Broadway. With stages, with balconies, yeah, uh, with yeah. seats. <laughs> you know, let me tell you what I hope. I hope, I hope that they still think it's worth it, because I don't know how well retail is doing in the middle of Manhattan right now, but they're killing themselves to put in retail on the first few floors here. So Yeah, there's going to be, it's going to be an enormous complex with 660-odd yeah. uh, hotel rooms mm-hmm. and uh, about... Ten floors altogether, they said, of retail. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, a um, crazy project. But it just tells you how powerful landmark status is. Yeah. That uh, they can uh, Also, how much command. money people want. Yeah. It, it's, and, and, and I guess how valuable the, re- the property spaces. is. Yeah. Real estate is. Well, that's, in, I think, the In big... Times Square. That right. somebody's willing to, is, is able to financially justify doing that project. In order to have the retail there. I hope it works out for them. So uh, there was an article in the clear blue about the series Borgen. Now, we have watched Borgen. I don't know that we had watched every single episode. We fell off a little bit. I... And you know why? Because it was getting dark. No. We, well, that may be. I would continue watching you know what? We so f- now they're bringing it back. We fell off because you thought it was getting dark. I, I was still all in. You, know, you, king of darkness. King of darkness. It wasn't that Love dark. that stuff. It's about, uh, you know, Denmark. The Danish. It's a dark country. The Danish king. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, so what was it? It's a political uh, intrigue, 
in Denmark. And that's what it is. And notable because the key figure is a woman who rose to the position of prime minister, uh, otherwise known as Bridget. Bridget, who is... Uh, much beloved Much character. beloved, wonderful reserves. Bridget Nyborg is the name of the character. Bridget Nyborg. Uh, played by Sidzi Babbitt Knudsen. Uh, and it's, it's great. It's great. I, I, I found it very interesting. And the politics in Denmark was surprisingly interesting. But I would have thought they went on for 12 seasons. But they only did three seasons. And uh, they thought uh, that, that was enough. Uh, they always intended three seasons. And they thought they had no more to tell. They didn't want to repeat themselves or extend themselves. Uh, and the final episode was in 2013. And we were aware, even as we watched it last year or so, that it was an older series. And then I see in the paper just yesterday, a uh, new season. Wasn't that an old series? Says, yeah. Who, when does this happen? They say after 10 years, they want to pick it up. I go, wow, how could they do that? And apparently they have some new plot having to do with Greenland. Greenland is owned by Denmark. I learned that by watching Borgen. And uh, apparently in the ensuing 10 years, since they went off the air, uh, there have been great natural resources uh, discovered at Greenland, or at least developed perhaps, and that there is new value uh, in terms of uh, Greenland and, and what's under the, uh, the ground probably. Uh, so there are new political issues, and that's what the new season is about. Uh, and uh, and maybe it's we're darker. In. It's darker. <laughs> that article says it's less West Wing, more, more House of, of cards. cards. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. You know, they had, it was a little racy, too, I thought. It was a little I racy. I don't even know, but it, it just... Um, I, I, we're going to be back you know, in. I, I'm back in. I I'm lost in. my... Well, you, you may have to watch it alone. Listen, I, there's nothing better than a strong female protagonist. That's, uh, that's yeah, what I'm I just, uh, it was, it just got, oh my I was God. not interested. Tams and tams and tams. Yeah, there's only we so much, support political there's only so much like political this. intrigue that's tams intriguing. It. It's you know? one thing if, uh, if you're supporting Kevin Spacey, I get, I even get the, that. Even the characters but, are saying, I don't even know if I can do this, you know, go this dark. We're doing this for Bridget Nyborg. That's, she was a she, very she engaging character. She sounds ambivalent about the... No, Bridget Nyborg's a character. But uh, yes. no, the, 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 the actress, um, the actress sounds ambivalent. Well, look, the bottom line is they can say what they want about uh, they found this compelling and they're getting together 10 years later. But obviously people's careers weren't skyrocketing. Otherwise, you can't get the old gang back together. But fine. Oh, All the more reason. Talk about dark. Yes. All right. Go ahead. Do you, and, and we have one more set of stories. Science stories. The science story. You're our science editor today. Well, they're... they're Barely science. It might be more nature stories. Yeah, that counts. Okay. Three little bits from the science section of the New York Times. And one is about lovebirds, small parrots with cheeky personalities. They are popular pets, but here's a cool thing about them. Yeah. They use their beak as a third limb. So when they climb up trees... They got claw, claw, beak, claw, claw, beak, claw, yes. claw, Let me beak. tell you something. If Pazzi had a beak, he'd be doing the same thing. And uh, they, their facial muscles have developed in a, such a way that they, uh, you know, is an effective way for them to climb up the side of a tree yeah. or, or whatever they want to climb. Yes. Uh, so that I thought was interesting. Yeah. And uh, they bring out here that, you know, it's kind of a real part of our biology is the concept of bilateral, okay? Yeah. So the idea of three limbs, yeah. 
as opposed to two or four or whatever, mm-hmm. just uh, is kind of out there. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Congratulations, parrots, for right. being so out there. Yes, yes. All right. Next thing is about elephants, yes. grieving elephants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it, they become aware that elephants seem to take notice. Um, of what? Of other dead elephants. Yeah, of dead elephants okay. passing. Well, it's hard to miss yeah, them. I mean, they're they're yeah, huge creatures. I mean, a little story about... notice that they passed. They'd be sitting there. They'd be rotting in front of you. It's kind of a no, but bleak they, situation. There seems to be an indication that uh, there they're, uh, are various kind of almost like rituals that uh, the elephants go through. Yeah. And the way they found this out, you know, uh, this, um, I guess, somebody... Um, Dr. Pokerell, a biologist, uh, was uh, witnessing an Asian elephant responding to a death. An older female elephant in an Indian park had died of an infection. A younger female was walking in circles around the carcass. They also noticed other piles of fresh dung that seemed in the area that seemed to indicate other elephants had done something similar. Yeah. And so they crowdsourced the research, yeah. so to speak, by making a call to, you know, to the YouTube, you know, looking for films of this kind of and thing. They found of more elephants. Of yeah. And they found uh, a, you know, substantial number of um, elephants reacting, touching, standing guard, kicking, shaking, um, in few cases, females had even used their trunks to carry calves or baby elephants that had died. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, a couple of interesting things. Interesting that uh, they don't really know if uh, it's just uh, something we're assuming by watching this activity or if, you know, um, if they're just, you know, do they understand that there is a concept of death? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Okay, or is it just, uh, you know, uh, acknowledging kind of an absence mm-hmm. there? But it's also interesting, you, you know, using YouTube to find this out. Mm-hmm. Okay, and here's my favorite. You know that I honestly feel that uh, seawater uh, will cure everything. Yeah. Okay. And bottlenose dolphins in the Red Sea off the Egyptian coast are big fans of a certain kind of coral. In the ocean. Yeah. Okay. okay. I think there are all kinds of great, powerful um, medicines. All right. In the ocean. Yeah. And uh, so these dolphins go and they swim. They like line up and swim through the coral, brushing against the coral with their skin. And sometimes they even, you know, get back in line and go a second time. Right. Okay. And uh, so noticing that, they're trying to analyze the corals. They said they found a potpourri of bioactive compounds, including antimicrobials, antioxidants, and hormones. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and they seem to be, you know, uh, this seems to be spa treatment for the dolphins. <laughs> they have figured this out. All right. That's uh, the elephants, the dolphins, and the I think we should go to the, the Red Sea and swim through some coral. Soft, bushy coral. It's, uh, Not that hard stuff. It's, it might be closer coral than the Red Sea. Okay. The Red Sea is a long way to go. 
But, uh, okay. All right, look. Uh, so at the end of the day, what are we recommending? Downton Abbey, A New Era, believe it or not. And uh, I'm recommending Borgen, although you feel it might be dark. We haven't seen it yet. And we think everything everywhere, uh, look into it. It's up for you. It takes a little patience and it takes, you know, again, the more you have an appetite for multiverse and science fiction, probably the smoother the journey. All right. So until... <laughs> Thank you. Until next time, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll see you next week.